The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco's vision about the education of youth. St. John Bosco visited Rome in May of 1884, four years before his death. Just as he was about to leave the Eternal City, he had a letter written to the oratory to relate a dream of the greatest importance. He had this dream on one of the nights that he had been feeling sicker than usual. He told Father John Lemoyne about it in several installments, ordering him to write it down. Father Lemoyne then redrafted the letter with only the passages that didn't deal with the oratory superiors. When Father Michael Rua read it to them one evening after night prayers, the boys were enraptured, especially when the saint wrote that he had read into their consciences. After he returned home, there was a steady coming and going of boys in his room, all of them wanting to know if he had read into their consciences, and if so, what he had seen. This had two principal effects, the beginning of a reform in the life of the oratory and the dismissal of some boys who were bad. The following is the complete account of the dream. My most beloved children in Jesus Christ, Don Bosco began, I'm always thinking of you, whether I am near you or far away. I have only one wish, and that is to see you happy in this world and eternity. It was this thought, this desire, that induced me to write you this letter. My dear boys, I feel the weight of being away from you and not seeing you. Not hearing you causes such a pain for me that you can hardly imagine it. That was why I would have liked to write you this letter a week ago, but all the things I had to do prevented me. Nevertheless, although there are now only a few days left before my return home, I want to anticipate my return among you at least by means of a letter, not being able to do it in person. It is one who loves you tenderly in Jesus Christ who writes to you, and it is his duty to speak to you with the liberty of a father. You will allow me to do this, will you not? and you will be attentive and will put into practice what I am now about to tell you. I have told you that you're the one and constant thought of my mind. On one of these past evenings, I had gone to my room, and while I was getting ready for bed, I had begun to say the prayers that my dear mother had taught me. Just then, I don't know whether sleep overcame me or whether something distracted me, but it suddenly seemed that two former boys from the oratory appeared before me. One of them came up to me, greeted me affectionately, and said, Oh, Don Bosco, do you recognize me? Yes, I recognize you, I answered. Do you still remember me? The other asked. I remember you and all the others. You are Valfrey, and you attended the oratory prior to 1870. Listen, he said then, would you like to see the boys who were at the oratory in my day? Of course, show them to me, I said. I'd be delighted. So Valfrey showed me the boys, and they all looked the same. They were all the same height and age as I had known them then. I thought I was in the old oratory at recreation time. It was a picture full of life, full of movement and merriment. Boys were running, skipping, and jumping. Some were playing leapfrog, and others were playing ball. In one corner, there was a cluster of boys avidly listening to a priest who was telling a story. In another corner, a cleric was playing with a cluster of boys. People were singing and laughing everywhere, and there were clerics and priests with cheerful boys gathered around them. 
It was obvious that the utmost cordiality and familiarity existed between the boys and their superiors. I was mesmerized by that spectacle, and Valfrey said to me, You see, familiarity breeds affection, and affection breeds confidence. This is what opens up their hearts, and the boys reveal everything to their teachers, assistants, and superiors. They're frank in their confession and outside of it even, and docile and obedient to anything they're told to do by someone they know is honestly fond of them. Just then, the other former pupil, who now had a white beard, came up to me and said, Don Bosco, would you now like to see and know the boys who live at the oratory today? This was Joseph Buzzetti. Yes, I answered. It's already a month since I saw them last. He pointed them out to me. I saw the oratory and all of you at recreation, but I no longer heard the shouts of joy, singing, or the lively animation that I had just seen before. Sadly, boredom, weariness, sullenness, and diffidence were evident on the boys' faces and in their actions. It's true that I saw a good many of them running and playing, but I also saw a good many more who were standing alone and leaning against the pillars, prey to disquieting thoughts. Other boys had withdrawn from the general recreation to sit on the stairs, the corridors, or on the balconies overlooking the garden. Others strolled slowly in groups, talking softly among themselves, casting suspicious or malicious glances around them. Here and there someone smiled, but such smiles were accompanied by glances that not only aroused suspicion, but also the conviction that had St. Aloysius been in the company of those boys, he would have blushed. Even among the boys who were playing, I saw a few so listless that it was obvious that they found no pleasure in their games. Have you seen your boys? The past pupil asked. Yes, I have seen them, I answered with a sigh. How different they are today from what we were, the former pupil exclaimed. Unfortunately, how listless they are at recreation. This causes the indifference that many show when they receive the holy sacraments. They are careless in their practices of piety in church and elsewhere, and that's why they're reluctant to live in an environment where divine providence showers all its bounty on their bodies, souls, and intellects. This is why many of them do not follow their vocation and are ungrateful to their superiors, and that's why they grow secretive and complain while other deplorable things occur as a consequence. I see, I see, I said, but how can I restore the former vivacity, cheerfulness, and expansiveness of these dear children of mine? With charity. With charity, I asked, but are not my boys loved enough? You know that I love them. You know how much I have suffered and insured for them during the course of some forty years, and all that I am still suffering and enduring now, all the privations, humiliations, oppositions, and persecutions I have endured in order to provide them with food, shelter, teachers, and especially in order to ensure the salvation of their souls. I've done all I could and all I know for them, who represent the love of my whole life." I'm not referring to you. Then to whom do you refer? To those who took my place? To the directors, prefects, teachers, and assistants? Don't you see how they spend the youthful years of their lives caring for those entrusted to them by divine providence? 
Don't you see that they're martyrs of their work and study? I see it and I'm aware of it, but that's not enough. The best is still missing. Well, what is it that's still missing? The boys must not only be loved, but they must know that they are loved. Don't they realize that everything that is done for them is done out of love? No, and I repeat, it's not enough. So then, what's needed, I implored, that they be helped to understand and love the things that are not so agreeable to them by participation in their childish pleasures? The things that are disagreeable to them are discipline, study, and self-mortification. They must learn these things with love and enthusiasm. Please explain yourself more clearly, I pleaded. Watch the boys at recreation. I watched them and then said, What special thing is there to see? You don't see it, even though you've been educating boys for all these years? Look again. Where are our Salesians? I looked and saw that there were only a few priests and clerics mingled with the boys, while even fewer participated in their games. The superiors were no longer the animating spirit at recreation. For the most part, they strolled up and down, talking among themselves, without paying any attention to what the boys were doing. Occasionally, someone did observe some wrongdoings, but they did nothing to correct the behavior. There were some Salesians who would have liked to mingle with the boys in their groups, but I saw that some of these youngsters were studiously trying to get away from their teachers and superiors. Were you not always in the midst of the boys at the oratory in the old days, especially at recreation time? my friend asked. Do you remember those wonderful years? It was a thing for rejoicing, like heaven, a period upon which we shall always look back lovingly, for we were guided by affection and held no secrets from you. Ah, yes, certainly, I said. Everything was delightful then for me as well, and the boys were all eager to come and talk to me. They were always eager for my advice so that they could put it into practice. But now I see that continuous audiences with others increased business matters, and my health prevented me from doing all this. That is all very true, but if you're unable, why are the Salesians not imitating you? Why do you not insist and demand that the Salesians behave toward the boys the same way as you did? I talk myself hoarse, but unfortunately, they don't feel like shouldering the burdens as we once did. So by neglecting to do what costs them least, they lose what is most important and waste all their efforts thereby. They must learn to love what the boys love, so that the boys may love that which is dear to their superiors. In this way, their efforts will be light. The cause of the present change in the ways of the oratory lies in the number of boys who do not confide in their superiors. Once their hearts were like an open book before their superiors, and they loved them and obeyed them promptly. But now they look on the superiors precisely as superiors, no longer as fathers, brothers, and friends. Therefore they fear them and love them little. If there is to be but one heart and soul, then for the love of Jesus, this fatal barrier of diffidence must be broken so heartfelt trust can take its place. What must be done to break down this barrier? I asked. 
And if you'd like to hear the answer to that question, please come back Wednesday for part two of this dream. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco's Vision About the Education of Youth, Part 2 What must be done to break down this barrier? I asked Joseph Puzzetti in the dream. It is imperative to achieve familiarity with the boys, he said, especially at recreation time. Without familiarity, affection cannot be shown, and without affection, there cannot be confidence. He who wants to be loved has to show that he loves. Jesus Christ became little with the little ones and shouldered our own infirmities. There we have the master of familiarity. A teacher who is seen only at the teacher's desk is only a teacher and nothing more. But if he joins the boys at recreation, he becomes a brother. If one is seen only when he preaches from the pulpit, we shall only say of him that he is doing his duty. But should he utter a word or two during recreation time, his will be regarded as the word of someone who loves. How many conversions were brought about by such words whispered unexpectedly into the ear of a boy at play? Those who know they're loved give love in return, and those who are beloved, especially by children, will obtain everything. Such a feeling of confidential trust is like an electric current between the boys and their superiors. They lay bare their hearts and make their needs known and reveal their faults. A love like this will enable the superiors to endure fatigue, displeasures, ingratitude, annoyance, shortcomings, and neglect on the part of the boys. Jesus Christ didn't snap the reed already bent, nor did he extinguish the smoldering wick. There's your model. Then you'll have no chance to see people who work for vanity who will punish only to take revenge on their offended pride, or who leave their assistance assignment out of jealousy for the overpowering ability of others. There will be no one who knocks down others in order to be loved and esteemed by the boys. Then you will not see anyone who favors one child and neglects all the other boys. If there is really true love, nothing but the love of God will be sought after and the salvation of souls." When this kind of love wanes, then things will begin to go wrong. Why should charity be substituted by the coldness of a rule? Why is it that the superiors abandon the observance of these educational rules dictated to them by Don Bosco himself? Why is it that the system of preventing transgressions with vigilance and love is slowly being replaced with one of less worth? If neglected, these laws will breed contempt for the superiors and will be the cause of very serious shortcomings. And this happens if familiarity is missing. If the oratory is to return to its former happiness, the former system must come back. The superiors should be always ready to listen to any doubts or complaints with all eyes to supervise their behavior and all heart to look for the temporal and spiritual good of those entrusted to him by divine providence. Then the boys will no longer barricade their hearts. Only in cases of immoral demeanor are the superiors to be inexorable. It's better to run the risk of expelling an innocent boy than to risk retaining one that will cause a problem. 
the assistants must look at it as their duty to report to their superiors anything that may in any way be offensive in the eyes of God that is brought to their attention. Then I asked, what's the best thing to do to make sure that a family spirit, love, and trust emerge triumphant? Strict observance of the house rules. Nothing more? The more appetizing course in any meal is a good cheer. As my former pupil finished speaking on this note, I continued watching the recreation with real displeasure, and little by little I was overcome by increasing fatigue. Such weariness overcame me that I could no longer endure it, so I shook myself and returned to my senses. I found myself standing at the foot of the bed. My legs were so swollen and painful that I could no longer stand upright. It was very late, so I went to bed, determined that I would write all this to my beloved children. I don't want to have such dreams because they tire me excessively. The next day I felt myself aching all over and couldn't wait to get to bed that next evening. But as soon as I was in bed, the dream started all over again. I saw the playground, the boys who are now in the oratory, and the same former pupil. I will tell the Salesians what you told me, but what am I to tell the boys at the oratory? I asked him. He answered, that they must appreciate all that their superiors, teachers, and assistants are tirelessly doing out of love for them, for it were not for their welfare they would not shoulder such sacrifices. Tell them they must learn how to endure the faults of others, for perfection is not out of this world and is found only in paradise. They must desist from complaining because this makes the heart grow cold. Above all, they must strive to live in the holy grace of God. He who is not at peace with God will not find peace within himself or with others. Do you mean to say that among the boys there are some who are not at peace with God? I asked. This is the primary cause of the malaise of which you are now aware, he replied, and which must be remedied. There is no need for me to specify such causes now. A person who has secrets to safeguard and who fears that his secrets will be discovered is the one who is distrustful. At the same time, the heart that is not at peace with God is full of anguish and is restless, intolerant of obedience, irritated over nothing, and feels that everything is going wrong. And since he has no love, he feels that the superiors do not love him. Yet, my friend, do you not see how often boys go to confession and communion here at the oratory? It is true that they go frequently to confession, but the thing that is radically wrong in the case of many of the boys is that they lack steadfast resolution when they go to confession. They do confess, but confess always the same faults, temptations, bad habits, acts of disobedience, and neglect of their duties. They go on this way for months and months, even years, sometimes right through their fifth year of high school. Such confessions count for little or nothing at all. They therefore bring no peace of mind, and if a boy is summoned before the judgment of God in such a state of mind, it would fare badly for him. Are there many such boys at the oratory? I asked. There are only a few in comparison with the great many boys living in the house, he answered as he pointed them out to me. I looked around and saw these boys, but in those few 
I saw things that grieved my heart sorely. I don't even want to commit them to paper, but when I return, I shall confer with those concerned. I'll only say that it is now time to pray and make steadfast resolutions, not only with words, but in deeds, and to show that the Dominic Savio still live amongst us in spirit. Finally, I asked my friend, Have you anything else to tell me? Tell all of them, old and young alike, to remember always that they're the children of Mary Hope of Christians. They should remember that she brought them here to rescue them from the dangers of the world, and with her assistance, the barrier of diffidence that the devil has been able to erect between the boys and their superiors must come crashing down. But are we going to succeed in removing this barrier? Most certainly, provided that old and young alike are willing to endure a few minor mortifications for the love of Mary and put into practice all that I have been saying. Meanwhile, I continued watching the boys and saw how some of them were heading for eternal damnation, and I felt so sharp a pain in my heart that I woke up. I saw so many important things that I would like to tell you, but this is neither the place, nor do I now have the time for it. After all this I have said, do you know what this poor old man who has consumed his whole life for his beloved boys wants from you all? Nothing more than the return of the happy days of the old oratory, when love and Christian trust between the boys and their superiors and the spirit of harmony and mutual endurance for the love of Jesus Christ prevailed. I need you to comfort me with the hope and the promise that you will do everything I wish for the benefit of your souls. You don't realize how lucky you have been to live at the oratory. I declare to you before God that a boy who enters a Salesian house will be immediately taken under the special protection of the Most Holy Virgin. So let us all work in harmony. Oh, my beloved children, the time is drawing near when I shall have to leave you for eternity. Here Don Bosco stopped his dictation. His eyes filled with tears, not out of regret, but out of the infinite tenderness that was evidenced by his glance and the tone of his voice. Therefore, he continued, I am most anxious to leave you, my priests, clerics, and most beloved children, on the road of God on which our Lord himself wishes you to walk. To this same end, the Holy Father sends you his sincerest blessing. I shall be with you in front of the picture of our loving mother, Mary Help of Christians, on her feast day. This feast should be the prelude to the eternal feast we shall enjoy one day together in paradise. Most affectionately in Jesus Christ, Father John Bosco. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to see a playlist with all of the dreams we've covered so far on this channel, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. This is a story from the beginning of Don Bosco's apostolate with boys in 1845. He didn't have his massive school yet, but taught catechism to his oratory boys at St. Philomena Hospital. This incident shows that God didn't allow anyone to interfere with Don Bosco's providential mission. God's message was clear. You don't mess with Don Bosco's oratory boys. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.
nothing could keep Don Bosco from thinking at all times about his oratory. Prudently looking ahead, he foresaw that the day would come when he would have to leave St. Philomena Hospital, now a haven for his boys. Fearing that they might again be left to their own devices, even if only for a short while, he started looking for a larger and more permanent spot, and none too soon. The thoughtless picking of some roses along the hospital entrance wall had also caused some resentment, and Don Bosco had received many complaints about it. One morning he took a walk, and wandering aimlessly, absorbed in his thoughts, he found himself in front of St. Peter and Chain's church. He felt like calling on the chaplain, Father Tessio, to ask him whether he would permit the boys to gather there for a while. Even before Don Bosco could finish his question, Father Tessio warmly interrupted with, Why, of course, come whenever you please, you and your boys. I shall be only too happy. He probably didn't know that the city administrator's office had forbidden the use of those premises for the teaching of catechism to the oratory boys. On a Sunday in May, Don Bosco took the boys to St. Peter and Chain's church. It so happened that Father Tessio was out. The boys were filled with wild enthusiasm at the sight of the long portico, the spacious yard, and a real church for their services. Their joy knew no bounds, and Don Bosco was very pleased with their merriment, for he used to quote St. Philip Neri often, who had told his students, shout and make all the noise you want, but do not commit sin. But before we hear about what hair-raising incident would disturb their perfect day, I'd just like to remind you that if you enjoy these videos, remember that it's made possible through your support. If you haven't noticed, every single one of these videos are ad-free, which is rare on YouTube. However, my dog and I still need to eat, so please consider becoming a promoter of St. John Bosco by following the link in the comments section below or by clicking on the logo at the end of the video. Help me spread the message of St. John Bosco far and wide. Unfortunately, the boys had hardly begun to rejoice when their joy turned into bitter disappointment. Near the tombstones, they encountered a formidable adversary, but not among the dead. This was a living adversary, none other than the chaplain's old housekeeper. As soon as she heard their singing, their ruckus voices and the clamor, she came storming out of the house in a rage. Cap askew and hands akimbo, she began to rain down torrents of hateful reproaches on them. Her indignation rose to a peak when they began to play ball, and one of her hens, brooding in a basket, scampered away, scared by a small boy, while her egg rolled to the ground and broke. A girl also joined in the scolding. A dog began to bark, a cat to meow, the hens to cackle, until it really sounded as though a grand war had broken out in Europe. As soon as Don Bosco realized what was happening, he hurried over to calm her and tried to tell her that the boys meant well. They were only playing, and they hadn't been doing anything wrong, and if any inconvenience had arisen, it could easily be tolerated and perhaps even remedied. But it was like talking to the wind. Far from calming her, poor Don Bosco found himself the target of a torrent of abuse and vituperation. Like a mad shrew, clenching her fists, she screamed first at the boys and then at Don Bosco. If Father Tessio doesn't send you away from here at once, I know what I'll do. And you, Don Bosco, why do you let these ragamuffins run wild instead of keeping them under control? These dolts, noisemakers, dirty loafers, and young ruffians. Don't you dare set foot here again next Sunday or there'll be trouble. But charity isn't spiteful 
as it says in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. To put an end to the shocking scene, Don Bosco ordered the recreation to end immediately. Then he turned to the woman and said gently, Dear lady, you're not even sure of being here yourself next Sunday. So why make such a point about telling us that you won't let us ever come here again? Then he went to the church, followed by the boys, and they never forgot what had happened that day. In fact, several of the boys commented afterward to Don Bosco, what a horrible woman to scream like that. But he made excuses for her, saying that they should feel sorry for the poor thing because she wasn't feeling well. To others who pointed out that it would be better not to play there anymore, he remarked, oh, don't worry. That woman won't be around to scold anyone next Sunday. After they were all in church, Don Bosco taught them some catechism, after which they recited the rosary. He then dismissed them and they went home, confident that they would be able to return the following week and have a little more fun. But they were mistaken, for that was the first and last time that they ever gathered at that spot. As Don Bosco was coming out of the church, the shrewish housekeeper continued to grumble and hurl threats in his direction, supported by a few of the neighborhood gossips who had come running up when they heard the noise. A serious-minded boy, Melanotti, a native of Lanzo, who at that moment had drawn nearer to Don Bosco, told us that the saintly priest showed no sign of irritation or even anger, but turned to him with a sigh and remarked quietly, Poor thing, she tells us not to set foot here again. If she only knew that next Sunday she will be in her grave. Just at this moment, Father Tessio came home. His house was just behind the apes of the church. At once, the housekeeper ran up to him and painted Don Bosco and his boys as some kind of revolutionaries, violators of holy places, and just plain rascals. Although the chaplain was aware of his housekeeper's habit of flying into a rage over trifles, he became nevertheless indignant at the boys when he heard her list of spiteful charges. Hurrying out of the house, he caught sight of Don Bosco at the farther end of the little square, talking to a few lingering boys. Hastening over to him, he said to him in an angry tone, Don't you come here again next Sunday, raising Cain and disturbing everybody. I'll see to that. Never again. Never. As Father Tessio walked back to his house, Don Bosco said to him, I feel sorry for you. Are you sure you'll be alive next Sunday? Melanotti also heard this remark of Don Bosco. As he accompanied him back to the refugio, he couldn't help admiring his calm. During the course of the evening, the housekeeper again regaled Father Tessio with stories about what the boys had done until he finally sat down and under her dictation wrote a stiff complaint to the city hall. He put Don Bosco's boys in a very bad light, asserting, among other things, that they had also defaced the tombstones. He termed their gathering an intrusion and a provocation. Regretful as it is to report, that was the last letter the poor chaplain ever wrote. The following day, Monday, he sealed it and summoning the housekeeper told her, have this letter delivered to the city hall. Those were his very last words. A few hours later, as the messenger was on his way, Father Tessio suffered a stroke, and on Wednesday, May 28, 1845, at 30 minutes past midnight, he died at the age of 68 after receiving the last sacraments. Hopefully, he died well. 
His letter made such an alarming impression on City Hall that a warrant was immediately issued for Don Bosco's arrest, should he dare to return to St. Peter and Chain's church with his boys. But hardly had one grave been filled when another had to be dug. Father Tessio's housekeeper followed him two days later, stricken in the same manner. The week wasn't over, and both these adversaries of the oratory had disappeared from this earth. It's easier to imagine than to describe what terror these two deaths caused in the neighborhood. It was impossible not to see the hand of God in all this, and the boys were so intimately convinced that instead of straying from Don Bosco, they became more warmly attached both to him and to the oratory. They promised never to forsake either one. Father Bosio's conviction was the same. One day, while he was at table with Don Bosco, it just so happened that the reading they were listening to while they ate was about St. Philip Neri. The passage described how those who had persecuted him died shortly afterwards. The same was happening in regard to Don Bosco. Consequently, it was clear that all should help him under all circumstances, even difficult ones, confident that by so doing, they would be cooperating with divine providence. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. Did you know that Don Bosco actually met St. Philip Neri? The two saints had a conversation as they were walking through the hills just outside of Rome, which inspired Don Bosco to follow his mission to educate boys and start his famous oratory. But if St. Philip Neri died in 1595, how in the world did Don Bosco encounter him as a young man of 18 more than 200 years later in 1841? It was through a heavenly vision sent from God. We'll learn all about this pivotal moment in Don Bosco's life, but I would first like to give you some background on St. Philip Neri and show you why he was such an amazing saint. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Whenever Don Bosco would preach about St. Philip Neri to the oratory boys, they saw his own likeness mirrored in his words. And whenever he referred to the saintly endeavors of this great man, they would whisper, that's just like Don Bosco. St. Philip Neri, Rome's renowned apostle and friend of youth, used to tell his boys, give me a lad who will trust me with just two inches of his head and I will make a great saint of him. He would also say, shout and make all the noise you want but don't commit sin. His boys carried out his advice with great zest, but at times a lay brother would tear out of his quarters to scold them for their racket as they dashed through the corridors and knocked things over. You rascals, he would shriek, is this the way to behave, breaking everything in sight? But they ignored him and carried on as before with deafening noise. They had their director's permission and that was all that mattered to them. Seeing that they had no intention to obey him, the lay brother would go to St. Philip Neri and indignantly say, I want you to come and scold those scamps. Can't you see they're tearing the house down? The saint would call them over and say, listen, my sons, stay still if you can and don't scream too loudly. The boys would scatter for new and noisier games while the poor brother would withdraw discomfited and muttering. Were it not for the fact that St. Philip Neri constantly and earnestly told his confreres, never let the boys be idle during recreation, the brother would have used forceful means to end that rumpus. 
He gave the young people five reminders to preserve the virtue of purity. Flee from bad company, do not pamper the body with dainty food, escape idleness, offer frequent prayers, and go often to the sacraments, especially confession. On one occasion, a woman confessed sins of slander to St. Philip Neri and asked for a cure of this bad habit. He said, buy a freshly killed chicken and pluck its feathers along the way as you come back to me. She did what he had said and returned to him with the plucked chicken. Now go back, he said, and bring me all the feathers you have scattered. But I can't, she replied, that's impossible. I cast the feathers carelessly and the wind carried them away. How can I ever recover them? He answered, you cannot. And so it is with your words of scandal. They have been carried about in every direction. You cannot recall them, so go and slander no more. These stories show that he was a man of profound wisdom and he had a thirst for souls. He was Florentine by birth and at 18 was sent to work with a well-to-do uncle. It was then that Philip had a mystical experience which he called his conversion. All taste for earthly things left him and he subsequently made his way on foot to Rome. There he found lodgings at the house of one Galeotto Caccia and taught his children in return for his keep. For the next two years, Philip led the life of a virtual recluse, giving up whole days and nights to prayer and contemplation. When he did emerge from his room, he immersed himself in the study of philosophy and theology, determined to live for God alone. He then started an apostolate, first at street corners talking to all who would listen, and then with young Florentines working in Rome. In 1548, with the help of his confessor, Father Persiano Rosa, Philip founded a confraternity of poor laymen, popularized the devotion of the 40 hours, and undertook the care of pilgrims in need. Greatly blessed, this work developed into the celebrated hospital of Santa Trinita dei Pellegrini. He was ordained on May 23, 1551, and became known for the gift of reading the thoughts of his penitents. As the number of conversions increased, he began to give regular conferences. He died in 1595, but this incredible man would appear in a vision to another great saint 200 years later. He would inspire St. John Bosco to spurn well-paid positions and pursue his God-given mission to educate the youth. But before we hear about Don Bosco's dream, if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link in the description below. Or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that should appear on the screen. At that time, St. John Bosco was 26 years old and had just become a priest. He had been offered three positions. The first was to be a teacher in the house of a noble Gionese gentleman with a salary of a thousand liras a year. Relatives and friends tried to convince his mother, Margarita, to persuade Don Bosco about the advantages of accepting this position. He would be provided with food and clothing, and the significant stipend would improve his family's condition. Margaret replied, My son in the house of a gentleman? What would he do with a thousand lire? What would his brother or I do with it if John lost his soul? He was offered the office of chaplain in his township of Morialdo. The townspeople insisted that they were ready to double his salary to keep him with them. His third offer was to be the vice curate in Castelnuovo. 
For a matter of such importance, Don Bosco decided to go to Turin to seek advice from St. Joseph Cafaso to know and do the will of God. The holy priest was professor of morals at the Convito Ecclesiastico, a finishing school for priests. Don Bosco told him about the offers of good stipends, the insistence of relatives and friends, and his disposition to devote himself entirely to evangelical work. St. Joseph Cafaso replied without a moment's hesitation, you need to study morals and preaching. For now, give up all these proposals and come to the Convito Ecclesiastico. And so it was that Don Bosco moved away from Castelnuovo, confiding in God whose ways are beautiful and in all his paths there is peace. He had no money in his pocket, yet he confidently walked toward Turin. This move seemed to be related to a dream or vision in which St. Philip Neri had appeared to him. Don Bosco found himself standing on a hill outside Rome. The city stretched out before him. Nearby, he saw a young man absorbed in serious thoughts with his gaze fixed on that splendid panorama. Don Bosco approached him and said, young man, who are you? And what are you gazing at so intently? I am a poor stranger. I gaze upon this great city and a thought occupies my mind, but I fear it's either too foolish or too bold. What is this thought? To dedicate myself to doing good to so many poor souls, so many poor children, who for lack of religious instruction walk the road to perdition. Do you have an education? I had a bit of schooling, but am not counted among the learned. Do you have financial means? Nothing. I have not a morsel of bread outside of what my master charitably gives me every day. Do you have churches or houses? I have nothing but a low, narrow room, the use of which I am charitably granted. My wardrobe consists of a rope pulled from one wall to another where I place my clothes. How then can you undertake such a task if you are unknown, uneducated, and without money? Indeed, the lack of means and merit worries me, but God inspires me with courage. God, who can raise sons of Abraham from stones, can accomplish his will through me, if he so wishes. Do you love Our Lady? At this point, Don Bosco described the young man's features, the flash of his eyes, his smile, and his affirmative answer. Don Bosco ended by asking him, And what's your name? Philip Neri the young man answered. Don Bosco saw his own mission mirrored in St. Philip Neri's. Don Bosco felt the call of God from his earliest days and following it, stayed the course throughout his life. Let us never lose confidence in God and Our Lady, trusting that they will provide us with the means to accomplish their will. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Come on, boy. In July of 1884, Don Bosco had a dream which revealed many ways to safeguard the virtue of purity. It's very valuable information for all Catholics. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. When Don Bosco started to dream, 
he seemed to see before him an enchanting and immense green slope. At the foot of it, a meadow formed that was equivalent to a low step from which one could jump off onto the little path where Don Bosco was standing. All around, it looked like an earthly paradise, magnificently illuminated by a light that was brighter and purer even than that of the sun. It was covered all around by green vegetation, star-spangled by a thousand different kinds of flowers and shaded by an infinite number of trees, whose branches intertwined, stretching out like immense festoons. In the center of the garden and stretching to its further border was a carpet of magic candor, so dazzling that the eyes were blinded. It was several miles wide, as magnificent as royal pomp. Don Bosco uses words like candor or candid in this dream to mean brilliant, white, or pure, so just keep that in mind as we go forward. Several inscriptions in golden letters ornamented the border encircling it. On one side it read, Beati Immaculati in Via, qui ambulant in Lege Domini. Blessed are they who pass through life's journey unstained, who follow the law of the Lord. On the other side, it read, To innocent lives he will never refuse his bounty. On the third was written, They will not be dismayed by adversity. In time of famine they will be well content. On the fourth side, Jealously the Lord watches over the lives of the guiltless. They will hold their lands forever. Then in the middle of the carpet was written this last one, He that walketh sincerely shall be saved. In the middle of the slope, on the higher side of the brilliant carpet, there stood a shining banner, on which was written in letters of gold, Son, thou art always with me, and all I have is thine. Though Don Bosco was enchanted by the garden, his attention was drawn to two lovely little maidens, who were about twelve years old, and who were sitting at the edge of the carpet, where the slope formed a low step. Their whole gracious demeanor emanated a heavenly modesty. One didn't only perceive the innocent simplicity of a dove in their eyes that gazed steadily upward, but also a most pure, fervent love and a joyful, heavenly happiness. Their broad, serene brows seemed to harbor candor and sincerity, while a sweet, enchanting smile hovered on their lips. Their features denoted tender, ardent hearts, and the graceful movements of their bodies conferred a dignity and nobility on them that contrasted oddly with their youth. A pure white garment fell to their feet, and no stain, wrinkle, or even speck of dust was apparent on it. Their long hair, forming a shadow in its thickness and falling in curled ringlets over their shoulders, was covered by a crown. They were talking with each other. They took turns to speak, asking each other questions, and issuing exclamations. They would both sit, or one sat while the other stood, or they would stroll together, but they never stepped off the candid carpet or touched either the grass or the flowers. Don Bosco stood there like a spectator in his dream without speaking to the little maidens, and they didn't seem to be aware of his presence. One of them addressed the other in a harmonious voice, "'What is innocence? The happy condition of sanctifying grace,' preserved by constant observance of the divine commandments. The other girl answered in a voice that was no less sweet, The purity of innocence preserved is the source and origin of all knowledge and virtue. The first maiden said, How splendid! 
How glorious, how magnificent is the virtue to live honestly among those who are evil, to retain the candor of innocence and purity of one's habits amid those who are evil. The other maiden rose to her feet and standing beside her companion said, Blessed is the boy who doesn't heed the counsel of the godless, who doesn't walk in the way of the sinner, but who delights in the commandments of the Lord, contemplating them day and night. He shall be like a tree planted beside the river where the water of God's grace flows, and which shall, in its good time, yield the abundant fruit of good works. The leaves of his holy intentions and his merit shall not fall before the blowing of the wind, and all that he shall do shall be successful. In all circumstances of his life, he shall work to enhance his reward. The first maiden answered, He is like a lily amid the thorns, which God shall pluck in his garden to wear as an ornament over his heart. So saying, she pointed to a great cluster of beautiful lilies that lifted their candid heads amid the grass and other flowers, and also to a tall hedge in the distance that surrounded the gardens with greenery. This hedge was thick with thorns, and beyond it one could perceive horrible monsters moving around like shadows, trying to get inside the garden. It's true, how much truth there is in your words, the other girl said. Blessed is the boy who shall be found without sin, for he has done wondrous things in his life. He was found to be perfect, and shall have glory in eternity. He could sin and did not, he could have done wrong, but did not. For this the Lord has prepared his reward, and his good deeds shall be celebrated by all the congregations of saints. And what great glory God has in store for them here on earth, the first said. The second rose to her feet now and exclaimed, Who could describe the beauty of the innocent? His soul moves lightly along its journey toward eternity. Before him there was a path spangled with stars. The innocent is a living tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. The blood of Jesus runs through his veins, staining crimson his cheeks and lips. All around him sweet melodies are heard, and the angels echo the prayer of his soul. The Most Holy Mary is at his side, ready to defend him. Heaven stands open for him. The infinite legions of the saints and of the blessed spirits stand ranged before him, inviting him to advance by waving their palms. In the inaccessible radiance of his throne of glory, God lifts his right hand to indicate the place prepared for him, while in his left he holds the magnificent crown with which he shall be crowned forever. The innocent is the desire, the joy, and the pride of paradise. An ineffable joy is engraved on his countenance. He is the Son of God. God is his Father. Paradise is his heritage. He is constantly with God. He sees him, loves him, serves him, possesses him, enjoys him, and possesses a range of heavenly delights. He is in possession of all treasures, all graces, all secrets, all gifts, all perfections, and the whole of God himself. That's why the innocence of the saints, and especially of the martyrs in the Old and New Testament, is depicted so gloriously. O oh, innocence, how beautiful you are! Tempted, you grow in perfection. Humiliated, you soar even higher. Embattled, you emerge triumphant. When slain, you soar toward your crown. You're free in slavery, serene and certain in peril, 
happy when in chains. The mighty bow before you. Princes hail you. The great do seek you. The pious obey you. The evil envy you. Your rivals emulate you, and your enemies succumb before you. Always shall you be victorious, even when men shall condemn you unjustly. The two little maidens were silent for a moment, as if to take a breath after this impassioned rhapsody. Then they took each other by the hand, exchanged glances, and spoke again in turn. Oh, if only the young knew how precious is the treasure of innocence! How jealously would they defend the stole of holy baptism from the beginning of their days! But alas, they don't reflect, and don't know what it means to soil it. Innocence is a most precious nectar, but it is contained in a jar of fragile clay, and unless one carries it with great care, it's easily broken. Innocence is a most precious jewel, but if one is unaware of its value, it can be lost and will easily be transformed into base metal. Innocence is a golden mirror which reflects the likeness of God, yet a breath of humid air is enough to make it rusty, and one must needs keep it wrapped in a veil. Innocence is a lily, yet a mere touch from a rough hand will wither it. Innocence is a candid garment, may your garment be always white. Yet a single blemish will defile it, so one must proceed with great caution. Innocence and integrity are violated if soiled only by one stain, and will lose the treasure of grace. Only one mortal sin is enough, and once lost, it's lost forever. What a tragedy it is that so many lose their innocence in one single day. When a boy falls victim to sin, paradise closes its doors, the Blessed Virgin and his guardian angel disappear. Music is silent. Light fades away. God will no longer be in his heart. The star-spangled path he was following vanishes. He falls and will linger like an island in the midst of the sea, in one single place. A sea of fire will extend to the furthest horizon of eternity, falling down into the abyss of chaos. Over his head, in the darkly menacing sky, flash the lightning flares of divine justice. Satan has hastened to join him, and loads him now with chains. He places a foot upon his neck, and raising his horrible countenance toward the sky, he shouts, I have won! Your son is now my slave. He's no longer yours. Joy is over for him. If, in his justice, God then removes from beneath him that one little place where he's standing, he'll be lost forever. Yet he may rise again. The mercy of God is infinite. A good confession will restore grace to him and his title as the Son of God, but not his innocence. And what consequences will linger on in him after that initial sin? He is now aware of the sin of which he had no knowledge previously. Terrible will be the evil inclinations he will experience. He will feel the terrible debt he has contracted toward divine justice and will find that he is now weaker in his spiritual battles. He will feel that which he had never felt before. Shame, sadness, remorse. To think that previously it was said of him, Let the little children come unto me. They will be like God's angels in heaven. My son, give me your heart. Ah, those wretches who are guilty for the loss of innocence in a child, they commit a hideous crime. Jesus said, 
Whoever shall give scandal to any of these little ones who believe in me, it would have been better if he had put a millstone around his neck and drown in the depths of the sea. Woe unto the world because of scandal. It's not possible that scandal be prevented, but woe unto him who is guilty of it. Beware lest you despise any of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven see constantly the face of my Father who is in heaven, and who demands vengeance. Wretched indeed are they, but no less wretched are those who permit them to steal their innocence. Then they both began to stroll up and down, talking about how innocence could be preserved. And if you'd like to hear their words of advice, please come back Wednesday because I've totally run out of time today. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. Purity and Ways It Can Be Safeguarded A Dream of St. John Bosco Part 2 If you'd like to hear Part 1, just click on the link at the top of the screen. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco A Project of America Needs Fatima I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Then both maidens in Don Bosco's vision began to stroll up and down the path, talking about how innocence could be preserved. One of them said, Boys make a great mistake when they think that only those who have sinned should do penance. Penance is necessary so that innocence may be retained. Had St. Aloysius not done penance, he would, beyond any doubt, have committed mortal sins. This should be preached, driven home, and taught constantly to the young. How many more there would be who would retain their innocence, whereas now there are so few. The Apostle says it. We should be carrying within our own body the mortification of Jesus Christ everywhere, so that the life of Jesus may manifest in our body. Jesus, who was holy, immaculate, and innocent, lived his life in privation and suffering. So did the Blessed Virgin Mary and all the saints. They did this to give an example to youth. St. Paul says, If you live by the flesh, you shall die. But if you slay the action of the flesh with the Spirit, you shall live. So innocence can only be retained through penance. Yet many wish to retain their innocence while living in freedom. Fools! Is it not written that he was taken away so that malice should not destroy his spirit, and temptation might not lead his soul into sin? For the lure of vanity obscures what is good, and the vortex of lust perverts the innocent soul. The innocent, therefore, has two enemies, the evil maxims and bad words of the wicked and concupiscence. Does not the Lord say that death at an early age is the reward of the innocent because it sets him free from battle? Because he was pleasing to God, he was loved, and because he lived among sinners, he snatched him away. He lived but briefly and had a great career, for his soul was loved by God, and for this he hastened to pluck him forth out of iniquity. He was taken away so that malice might not destroy his spirit, and temptation might not lead his soul into sin. Fortunate are the young who embrace the cross of penance, and who repeat what Job said with a steadfast resolution I will maintain my innocence to my dying day. Hence, mortification is needed to overcome the boredom they experience in prayer. It is also written in the book of Psalms, All along the immaculate path I will sing and I will understand. When will you come to me and ask, and you shall receive our Father? Mortification of the mind by accepting humiliation, 
by obedience to one's superiors and to the rules. It's likewise written in the book of Psalms, Never let pride dominate me. Then I shall be above reproach and free from grave sin. God resists against the proud and gives grace to the humble. He who humbles himself shall be exalted, and he who exalts himself shall be humbled. Obey your superiors. Mortification always in telling the truth and acknowledging one's faults and whatever dangers one may find himself in. Then one will always be well advised, especially by his confessor. For the love of your soul, don't be ashamed to tell the truth, as it says in the book of Ecclesiasticus. For there is an embarrassment or a blush which brings sin with it, and there's a blush which brings glory and grace. Mortification of the heart by restraining its ill-advised impulses, by loving everyone for God's sake, and resolutely turning away from anyone who we realize is tempting our innocence. Jesus said it, If your hand or your foot gives scandal, cut it off and cast it from thee. It's better that you go through life without a foot or without a hand than to be cast into eternal fire with both your hands and your feet. If your eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it away from you. It's better that you should enter eternity with but one eye only than to be cast with both your eyes into the flames of hell. Mortification in courageously and frankly enduring the scorn of human respect, as it says in Psalm 64. They sharpened their tongues like swords, shooting bitter words like arrows, shooting them at the innocent from cover. Mortification of the eyes, in looking at things and people, in reading, and by avoiding all bad or unsuitable books. I have made a pact with my eyes never to even think of a virgin. And in the Psalms it says, Turn away your eyes so that they may not look on vanity. Mortification of the ears. Never listen to evil conversations or mawkish or godless speech. In Ecclesiasticus chapter 28 we read, Put a hedge of thorns around thine ears and do not listen to the wicked tongue. Mortification of speech. Don't let curiosity overcome you. It's likewise written, Put a door and a lock upon your lips. Take heed lest you slip with your tongue and fall in the sight of your enemies who lie in wait for you, and your fall will be incurable unto death. Mortification of the palate. Do not eat or drink too much. In short, mortification by bearing all that happens to us during the course of the day, the cold and heat, without seeking our own comforts. Mortify your members that are on earth. Remember that Jesus told us, If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, carry his cross daily, and follow me. With his provident hand, God surrounds the innocent with crosses and thorns, even as he did with Job, Joseph, Tobias, and other saints. Because you were acceptable to God, it was necessary that you be tested. The path of the innocent has its trials and sacrifices, but it finds strength in holy communion, for he who goes often to communion will have life everlasting. He lives in Jesus, and Jesus lives in him. He lives of the very life of Jesus, and he will be raised by him on the last day. This is the wheat of the elect, the vine that buds with virgins." You set up a dining table right in front of those who give me trouble, but they will fall thousands and ten thousands by your sides, and they shall not get close to you. 
and the most sweet virgin by him is his beloved mother. Ego mater pulcre dilectionis et timoris et agnitionis et sancte spei. I am the mother of beautiful love and of fear and of knowledge and of holy hope. The two little maidens then turned and slowly climbed the slope. One of them exclaimed, The salvation of the just stems from the Lord. He is their protector in times of tribulation. The Lord shall help them and shall set them free. He seizes them from the hands of sinners and shall save them because they put their hopes in him. The other went on, God girdled me with strength and made the road I was to follow immaculate. When the two of them came to the center of the magnificent carpet, they turned around. Yes, one of them cried out, Innocence, when crowned by penance, is the queen of all virtue. The other also exclaimed, How beautiful and splendid is a chaste generation! Its memory is immortal in the eyes of God and man. Men imitate it when it is present and long for it when it is gone to heaven, crowned triumphantly in eternity, having wrested their reward for their chaste battles. What a triumph! What rejoicing! How glorious a thing to present God with the immaculate stole of one's holy baptism after so many battles waged amid the applause, the canticles, the splendor of the heavenly hosts. As they were thus speaking of the rewards awaiting innocence retained through penance, Don Bosco saw hosts of angels appear who descended on that candid carpet. They joined the two young maidens who took their place in the middle of them all. The two maidens sang, You have made me welcome because I was innocent. You have made me steadfast in your presence forever. May the Lord God be ever praised forever and ever. So be it, so be it. Now other hosts of angels came to join the first ones and the others after them. They were each so handsome that the human mind could never in any way conceive even a remote idea of what they were like. When the two girls had completed their canticle, they could all be heard singing together in one immense harmonious voice, the likes of which has never before been heard nor ever will be heard here on earth. As they were singing, ever more angels came to join them. And when the canticle was over, they all soared slowly aloft, one after the other, and disappeared together with the entire vision. Then Don Bosco woke up. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear more stories about the virtue of purity from this channel, just click on the playlist above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. There were a few times in which St. John Bosco had visions of devils. These experiences were sent from above that he might learn how the devil tries to take us to hell. This particular dream is called the devil in the playground. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco spent two months at Varese during a very serious illness from December 1871 to January 1872. During this time, he received several dreams or visions about his oratory boys. One night after his return to the oratory at the beginning of March, Don Bosco narrated one of these dreams to his pupils and Father Berto wrote a summary of it. But before we begin, I'd just like to remind you that all of these videos are ad-free 
And if you'd like to keep them that way and support this channel, you can become a promoter of St. John Bosco by clicking on the link in the description below or by waiting till the end of the video and clicking on the logo that should appear on the screen. Help me spread Don Bosco's message far and wide. The saint's account of his vision began, after I told some people that I had had a dream, others kept asking me about it, both in person and by mail. Hence, I'll tell you about it, but just for the sake of conversation, because dreams come when one is asleep, and we are not to overvalue them. Throughout my illness, you were always in my mind. Always, day and night, I talked about you, because my heart was constantly with you. Even when asleep, therefore, I dreamed about you and the oratory. I paid you several visits, and consequently I can talk about your concerns even more knowingly than you perhaps can yourselves. Of course, I didn't come bodily or you would have seen me. One night, no sooner had I fallen asleep than I immediately found myself in your midst. I came out of our old church of St. Francis de Sales and immediately spotted an individual in the corner of the playground adjacent to the portico leading to the visitor's lounge. This man was holding a writing tablet, which listed all your names. He looked at me and immediately jotted something down. Then he moved successively to the corner near the old classrooms and to the bottom of the staircase leading up to my room, and in no time roamed through the whole playground, checking things and taking notes. Curious to know who he was and what he was writing, I tailed him, but he moved so fast I soon had to trot to keep up with him. He also went through the artisan's playground, checking and taking notes with astonishing speed. Anxious to find out what he was writing, I drew closer. Each line bore the name of a boy, beside which he would jot down something. While he gazed off here and there, I quickly flipped some pages and saw that some names had on the opposite page pictures of animals, symbolizing the sins of those boys. Opposite one boy's name was the picture of a swine with the inscription Comparatus est lumentis incipientibus, et similis factus est ilis. He has been compared to senseless beasts and made like to them, as it says in the book of Psalms. Other names were marked on the facing page with a forked tongue and a legend in Latin. Translated, it read, Whisperers, detractors, are worthy of death, and not only they that do such things, but they also that consent to them that do them. Romans. I saw also pictures of donkey ears, symbolizing evil talk with the words corumpunt bonos mores colloquia prava. Evil companionships corrupt good morals. Corinthians. Others had an owl or some other animal beside their names. I turned the pages very quickly and noticed that some names had not been written in ink and so were hardly legible. At this point, I took a close look at that individual and noticed that he had two reddish long ears. His face was as red as fire, and his eyes seemed to flash with blood-red fiery sparks. Now I know who you are, I said to myself. Then he walked around the playground two or three more times, checking and taking notes. While he was busy with all that, the bell rang for church. I headed toward it, and immediately he followed me, stationing himself near the door, watching you as you passed through. He too went inside then, and stood just in front of the altar rail gate, to keep an eye on you throughout the whole mass. I didn't want to miss anything, and so, noticing that the sanctuary door was slightly ajar, I stood there watching him. 
Father Cibrario was celebrating Mass. At the elevation, the boys recited the versicle, blessed and praised every moment be the most holy and divine sacrament. At that precise second, I heard a resounding roar as if the church were caving in. Both the stranger and his writing tablet vanished in smoke, leaving but a handful of ashes. I thanked God for having thus overcome and driven the demon out of his house. I also realized that attending Holy Mass destroys all devilish gains and that the moment of the elevation is especially terrifying for him. After Mass, I walked out, convinced that I had gotten rid of that individual, but instead, there he was, just outside the door, huddled up, leaning with his back against the corner of the church. He wore a tattered red cap, through which two long horns protruded from his head. "'Ah, you're still here, you hideous beast!' I shouted. My cries startled poor Inria, who was standing nearby, half-dozing. At that same moment, I awoke. This is my dream, and even though it was nothing more than a dream, I still learned something which had never before dawned on me. It's this. The devil, not content with keeping a record of the evil he sees being done because the Lord wouldn't believe him on Judgment Day, uses the very words of Holy Scripture and of God's commandments to condemn the guilty ones. Thus, he inflicts also the sentence. Many of you might like to know whether I saw something about you in that tablet and whether your names were clearly legible. I can't talk about that now, but I'll tell those who are interested privately. I saw many other things in this dream. At times, that individual hurled angry words at me and at someone who was with me, but since it would take too long, I'll tell you a little bit at a time. I have many things to tell you about the past and present, but since so many of you keep asking me about that dream, I'll go into some detail, but briefly, lest it take too long. I was asked whether I saw anything else after the writing tablet turned into ashes. Yes, as soon as it vanished with that ugly rascal, a cloud of sorts arose, and in its midst was a flag or banner bearing the inscription, Grace Obtained. I saw other things, too, which I didn't want to tell you, lest you become swell-headed. But since you're all so good and virtuous, don't take me too seriously on that, I'll let you in on a little secret. I saw that during my absence, you kept yourselves in God's grace. I can assure you that you have obtained many spiritual favors, including my recovery, for which you prayed so much. But this isn't all. While I and someone else kept tailing that hideous monster watching his every move, I was able to see that all your names were written in that tablet. Some pages had only two or three names, followed by these dates, 1872, 1873, 74, 75, and 76. Each date was followed by these words, Requiem Eternum, Eternal Rest. On another page, I again saw those words, but no names. I saw only as far as 1876 and counted Requiem Eternum 22 times, six referring exclusively to 1872. And just a side note from me, all of these deaths came to pass, and the proof of this prophecy was used in St. John Bosco's canonization process. He continued, In trying to understand this, because you know that dreams must be interpreted, I came to the conclusion that by 1876, 
we shall have to sing Requiem Eternum 22 times. I was hesitant about this interpretation. All of you being so healthy and strong, it seemed odd to me that so many should die by that year, and yet I could draw no other conclusion. Let us hope that what follows, i.e. et lux perpetua luciet ace, and let perpetual light shine upon them, may also come true, and that we may be able to say that such light indeed shines before our eyes. Now I do not wish, nor is it proper, to disclose how many had the requiem eternum beside their names, or who they were. Let us leave this among God's inscrutable secrets. Let us just strive to keep in God's grace so that, when our day comes, we may tranquilly present ourselves to our divine judge. Life is God's gift. By keeping us alive, He's constantly bestowing a gift on us. On my part, since I regained my health through your prayers, even though I wasn't too keen about recovering, I shall always strive to spend it in God's service and for your spiritual welfare, so that someday we may all enjoy God, who showers us so lavishly with benefits in this veil of tears. So ended Don Bosco's extraordinary account. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Faithful Catholics may ask, how often should I receive communion or go to confession? Don Bosco will give definitive answers to these questions in today's video. Every word of it is taken from his good night talks when he would instruct his oratory boys on matters of the faith. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. In this good night talk on All Souls Day, Don Bosco presented the three fundamental principles of his educational system, avoidance of sin, frequent confession, and frequent Holy Communion. It's a delight to observe the calm simplicity and the commanding language with which he stated his long-held views on the frequent reception of Holy Communion, a topic that was hotly debated in his day. Seeing that he formed saints like Dominic Savio and saw Our Lord and Our Lady frequently in visions, I trust his advice completely. He was talking about their need to study hard, as it was a school after all. He said, True wisdom comes only from God. Keeping busy and making good use of time would be of no avail if you're burdened with sin. Since the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we must put our consciences in order. In the study hall, there used to be a poster with this inscription from the Book of Wisdom. Wisdom will not enter into a malicious soul, nor dwell in a body subject to sins. I don't know if it's still there. If it's not, I'll ask Father Durando to put another one up. Here I feel the need to repeat the advice I customarily give at the beginning of the year, frequent confession and frequent Holy Communion. As to the frequency of confession, I make no rules. Now, the fathers of the church suggest once a week or every two weeks or once a month. St. Ambrose and St. Augustine agree on once a week. I leave it up to you. Go to confession whenever your conscience bothers you. Some of you may go a week or 10 days without committing a sin. Others may go 15 and even 20 days. However, still others may fall into sin within three or four days. Naturally, these boys should go to confession more frequently unless their sins are slight. 
The Catechism teaches us to go to confession once a month or every two weeks. St. Philip Neri taught and recommended weekly confession. Such was also the practice of St. Aloysius. I suggest this. If you care but little for your soul, go once a month. If you want to save your soul but are not too eager about it, go every other week. If you want to aim at perfection, go every week. Do not go more often unless your conscience bothers you. As to the frequency of receiving communion, I likewise do not wish to set rules. Instead, I'll tell you a short story. There was a man who usually went to St. Vincent de Paul for confession, but became dissatisfied with him because he insisted that the man should go to communion several times a week. Tired of hearing this, the man decided to go to another priest. He found one and told him, I want you to know that I used to go to Father Vincent, but since he always ordered me to receive communion nearly every day, I left him and came to seek your advice. Perhaps unaware of the harm he was doing, the priest replied, You're right, my son. Why go so often to communion? Once a week will be enough. Some time later, he even counseled his penitent to go every other week in order to better prepare himself. Finally, continuing in this false spiritual direction, the priest told the man to receive only once a month. I don't know the reasons for this advice. Perhaps the man kept committing the same sins, or the priest thought that he wasn't making any spiritual progress. The poor fellow followed his confessor's advice. And what happened? Within a short time, he discontinued going to communion altogether and only went to confession. Then he began to go to theaters, parties, dances, and other amusements. And soon enough, he stopped going to confession and gave himself up to unbridled living. After a while, though, feeling rather miserable and remorseful, he went back to St. Vincent and said, I'm in very bad trouble, Father Vincent. Why did you not come to see me anymore, my son? The saint asked. I became tired of frequent communion, so I changed confessors. But I see that in abandoning communion, I also gave up piety, became worse, and ended by abandoning confession. From now on, I want to follow your advice and receive Holy Communion often. He then made a good confession and again began leading a good life. Gradually, he received communion more frequently and once again became the pious man he had formerly been. I recommend the same to you. Everyone needs Holy Communion. Those who are good need it in order to remain good, and those who are bad need it in order to become good. In this way, you will acquire that true wisdom which comes from the Lord. Therefore, I repeat, avoid idleness and sin and go frequently to confession and communion. There he finished, but I would also like to add some notes on frequent communion from another good night talk, which raises the question of whether some people are in the spiritual condition to receive daily, because one has to be free from mortal sin. Don Bosco said, I again strongly ask that each one keep his conscience free of sin so as to be able to receive communion daily. However, as regards frequent reception of the Eucharist, each of you should consult his confessor and do as he says. But the thing that you must never forget is to keep your conscience always in such condition that you may receive communion daily. Now I must mention something which has repeatedly been pointed out to you. Often you so crowd into the sacristy that one can hardly get through. 
Some are there not to go to confession, but only to get warm. There is nothing wrong with that if you're freezing, but honestly, such is not the case. I wouldn't blame you if you were that cold in church, but that's not true, so I can't praise you for skipping morning prayers. If someone really feels he's freezing, let him tell me or Father Kiala, and he'll be given a portable stove. All jokes aside, I must say that this is no laughing matter. For some time now, many boys, mostly older fellows, would like to make their confession to me, but finding the sacristy jammed, they walk away, hoping for better luck the next day, or they settle for another confessor. Let us therefore set some norms to ease matters for these boys and make confession more helpful to your souls. First, don't go to confession more often than once a week. Some, especially the younger ones, would want to go to confession every day. But do as I say, and everyone will have his chance. However, go to confession at least once a month. Generally, every 10 or 12 days, or every two weeks is a good rule. Many say, we like to go every week. Well, that's quite all right. Others may remark, I want to receive communion frequently, but a few days after confession, I'm no better than before, and I don't dare receive without going to confession again. I say, if you cannot keep your conscience clear for a week, then it's better not to go to communion so often. But I want to do better, you may say. If I could go to confession more often, I could more easily succeed. Not really, I reply. Instead of going to confession two or three times a week, make a firmer resolution. And you'll find that this is far more effective than going to confession more often with but little sorrow and without determination to amend your ways. This is why your confessor himself has told you to go to confession less frequently. Prepare yourself better to receive this sacrament properly. There's only one case when I think one should go to confession more often than once a week, and that's when the confessor himself, after carefully considering one's spiritual condition, says, come to confession every time you fall into this or that sin, so as to overcome your habit or evil passion. When a confessor gives this specific advice for a particular reason, the penitent will doubtless benefit. But apart from this, go regularly every week or every 10 to 15 days. Then, with your confessor's permission, you may very often go to Holy Communion. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear more episodes where Don Bosco explains matters of the faith, just click on the playlist above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. When St. John Bosco was a boy, he used to put on roadside magic shows, which attracted scores of people. In exchange, he either asked them to pray a rosary with him or listen to the Sunday sermon, which he had memorized word for word. These sleight-of-hand tricks were learned only to attract souls to Christ and do apostolate. Later on, when he was in high school, some people couldn't understand how he was able to pull off these impossible stunts and were convinced that he was possessed by a demon. Let's hear how St. John Bosco proved them wrong. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. When John Bosco was 19 years old, he continued to be the life of the party wherever he set foot. Everyone was charmed by his good manners and his frank and joyous cordiality. John's conjuring tricks were so interesting 
that the spectators forgot everything else and hung on his every word or gesture. It was because of these stunts that he was a welcome guest in the households of Chieri. One of the tricks that he frequently performed was the fake killing of a sparrow, after which he would pound it in a mortar, place its remains in the barrel of a pistol, and pull the trigger. Lo and behold, the sparrow would fly out safe and sound. Or, at choice, he would pour either white or red wine from the same bottle. One day, he wagered that he could make an entire dish of ravioli disappear from the kitchen and make it reappear in somebody else's home. Some secretly made an identifying mark on the dish. Others, gripped by curiosity, attentively watched him as he made signs, muttered some mumbo-jumbo, and asked lengthy questions. Finally, John announced that it was done and invited everyone to go to a certain house to see for themselves. They all rushed there and found an identical dish of ravioli, just as he had said. This was all prearranged, no doubt, but when he would deftly remove a ball from the tip of someone's nose, guess the amount of money people had in their pockets, pulverize metal coins with his fingertips, or make his entire audience look deformed or even headless, some people began to think that John was truly a sorcerer, for it didn't seem possible that anyone could perform such acts without the assistance of a demon. His landlord, Thomas Cumino, more and more began to suspect this. He was a very religious man, but he also was fond of practical jokes and good, clean fun. John took advantage of his easygoing nature to play all manner of tricks on him. Quite often, he would fill a bottle with wine, but when he poured it into his glass, it was just plain water or vice versa. Frequently, fruitcake would suddenly turn into bread. Coins in Kumino's purse were transformed into useless, rusty scraps of tin. His hat would become a nightcap. Walnuts and hazelnuts were changed into gravel. Sometimes John would make Camino's eyeglasses vanish before his very eyes and suddenly reappear inside of one of Camino's pockets, although the poor man had been rummaging through them over and over again, even turning them inside out. Or at a mere gesture on John's part, an object that the old gentleman kept carefully hidden, such as his wallet, would suddenly show up before him, while another that stood before his eyes would simultaneously disappear without a trace. Often John would show him some playing cards and ask him to select one. He would then guess which card had been picked. Or John would tell him to think of a number, add it, multiply it, and subtract it. At the end of these operations, he would tell his landlord the original number he had picked. All this would stun the old gentleman. Sometimes John would wager that he could conjure up a key, which Camino for certain knew was elsewhere. The key would then turn up at the bottom of the soup terrine after the soup had been served. Such pranks occurred practically every day. All the good man could say in the face of them was, men can't do these things, and God doesn't waste time with such nonsense, so it must be the devil's doing. He had nearly made up his mind to ask John to leave. Unwilling to discuss the matter with any of his lodgers, Camino sought the advice of Father Bertinetti, a priest who lived nearby. He called on him one fine day, almost terrified out of his wits. I've come to see you about a very serious matter of conscience, father, he said. I believe I have a sorcerer in my house. He told the priest about his suspicions, a long tale of things he had seen or imagined to see or suspected, and he portrayed them so vividly 
that Father Bertinetti began to believe them himself. The priest thought that such pastimes might indeed be wizardry. He decided to refer the matter to Canon Burzio, the school superintendent. Father Burzio, in due time, sent for the boy for questioning. Father Burzio was a pious, learned, and prudent man. When John showed up at his house, the canon had just given alms to a beggar and had started saying his breviary. Smiling, he asked the boy to wait a little and then invited him to come into his study. Here he began to question him about the Catholic faith. John answered brilliantly, but he could hardly keep from laughing once he realized the purpose of this interrogation, to see if he was possessed. The priest then asked him how he spent his time during the day and was very satisfied with his answers. John answered frankly, intelligently, and without any evasion, but his examiner was not yet convinced. He continued the interrogation courteously, but with an expression of severity on his face. I am quite satisfied with your application to your studies and your conduct so far, my boy, but certain stories about you are making the rounds. They tell me that you can read other people's thoughts, that you can guess how much money a man has in his pocket, that you can make people see white when it's black, that you know what's happening at a distance, and so on. That makes people talk about you. Some even suspect that you dabble in sorcery, and that therefore there's something diabolic in it. Tell me now, who taught you these arts? Where did you learn all of them? Tell me in all confidence. I assure you that I shall not make use of this knowledge except for your own good. Without batting an eyelash, John requested five minutes before answering and asked the dean for the exact time. Automatically, the priest put his hand in his waist pocket to look at his watch, but it wasn't there. If you can't find your watch, then please let me have five soldi, John suggested. The priest rummaged through his pockets, but couldn't find his purse. Oh, you rascal, he cried indignantly. Are you working for the devil, or is he working for you? You've conjured away my watch and my purse, and I can no longer keep silent. I shall have to report you. You're lucky I'm not giving you a sound thrashing. During this outburst, John remained calm and unruffled. The canon calmed down a little and said, Well, let's talk it over quietly. Tell me how you did it. How could you so neatly relieve me of my watch and my purse? Where did you put them? It's like this, John answered. When I arrived, you were giving alms to a beggar. Then you went in and put your purse on top of the kneeler in the other room. When we came into this room, you put your watch on the table. I hid both these things. You thought you had them on your person, whereas they were really under this lampshade. So saying, he raised the lampshade under which lay both objects supposedly spirited away by the devil. The canon had a good laugh and asked John to do a few more tricks. When he caught on to them, he was delighted and gave John a little gift and dismissed him. Go and tell all your friends that ignorancia est magistra admirationis. Wonderment is the result of ignorance. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear more stories about St. John Bosco's youth, just click on the playlist above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you.